Uh, this morning in our time together, I'd like to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, and I would like to look back one last time at the Incarnation and look at four very important points that we can very easily draw from that verse, and then look ahead to take the truths about the Incarnation and say, how are they going to change me and make me a person that's more like Christ in the year ahead, 2021. So I've entitled this message, Rags, Riches, and the Incarnation. Do you have a favorite Christmas movie that you watch every year? Maybe some of you are into the classics like Jimmy Stewart, It's a Wonderful Life, or Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye, White Christmas. About George C. Scott, Christmas Carol. Maybe you're into a newer classic, like The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Home Alone. Okay. I have heard several people lately say that their favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard. If you can explain that one to me, please do so after the service today. The Stanley family has gotten in the habit of watching the Nativity story, which I believe does a decent job of tr capturing what it must have been like for Joseph and Mary to receive news that they would bring forth a child when they weren't married and had never been together in a way that would produce a baby. Our family enjoys this fairly recent Christmas tradition. For all of these sorts of movies, they, they don't really lose their meaning or effect through multiple viewings, do they? We watch them over and over again because they still affect us in the way that they affected us the first time we watched it. I hope that this is true about the message of the incarnation itself, that when we celebrate Advent every year, when we celebrate Christ's birth, that it doesn't lose any of its meaning because we've done it many times before. And I hope that this year's Advent season has been as meaningful to you as it has been in the past, and maybe even more meaningful given the unique year that 2020 has been. The truth is we all love a good story, and it seems like in America, we especially like good rags-to-riches stories. You know the kind of story I'm talking about, where the main character lives in poverty but happens to make it rich through hard work or beneficent circumstances of some kind. Think Cinderella. We got a picture of her up there, I think, coming. Think Cinderella, the young girl serving her wicked stepmother and stepsisters. Mistreated day after day after day. There she is, rag in hand, wearing rags, rag on her head. She is rags. And of course, she's mistreated, works hard for them until that one day when she sneaks off to the prince's ball, having magically been transformed by her fairy godmother into someone with a beautiful gown and the best car in the parking lot. 
At the ball, she catches the prince's eye, and after overcoming one more set of disappointing circumstances, the glass slipper finds its way onto her foot, and she and the prince, of course, live happily ever after. I think we like stories like this, especially in America, because we want to believe that the American dream lives on, And what's the American dream? It's the belief that no matter who you are and how difficult your circumstances, no matter how you start out in life, our country provides you with the opportunity to succeed if you work hard. Andrew Carnegie was born into extreme poverty in Dunfermline, Scotland in 1835. He came to the United States with his parents in 1848, and he began working as a telegraph operator at the age of 14. He caught the eye of the superintendent of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and his rise in the industry became rapid. At the age of 24, he became superintendent of the Pittsburgh Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and began to make investments of his money in things like the Titusville Oil Fields, the Keystone Bridge Company, and a number of iron mills. Around the age of 38, he began concentrating his business dealings in steel. And in 1875, he opened his first steel plant. He opened the first steel plant in the United States, Carnegie Steel. In 1901, he sold Carnegie Steel to J.P. Morgan, and it became United States Steel. He sold his business in 1901 for $480 million, which made him the richest man in the world. By the time of his death in 1919, Carnegie had given away 90% of his fortune, and philanthropic work focused largely on education. The story of his life is a true rags-to-riches story. This morning, I would like to take one last look at the Incarnation, and to think of the Incarnation as a riches-to-rags story whose purpose was to produce a rags-to-riches story. So I'd like to read one more time our passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, as soon as I find it. It's here somewhere. There it is. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus 
that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And this will be the focus of our thoughts this morning. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. J.I. Packer calls 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the key text for interpreting the Incarnation, since it calls us to view the Incarnation not just as a mystery of nature, but as a wonder of grace. Two weeks ago, Pete LaRosa helped us to understand the Incarnation from John 1. He helped us to understand the mystery of the Incarnation. He called us to be amazed at the God-man Jesus Christ. He reminded us that some of the mysteries of the Incarnation were the fact that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He was unique in his nature. The Logos, the Word, made flesh, taking on all the qualities of human nature except sin. But here in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul expands our view of the incarnation by seeking to help us view it as a wonder of grace. And I would like to consider four facts this morning from the text, looking back on the incarnation, and then three applications or reflections that look forward to 2021. If you have your bulletin, there's a place for you to take a few notes on each of those. Number one, first fact, the source of the incarnation was grace. For you know the grace. Grace is a common theme for the Apostle Paul. And how could it not be a theme for Paul? Paul knew his own story well. He knew that he was an enemy of God. He was an enemy of Jesus Christ, and he zealously persecuted anybody who would put their faith in Jesus. He was the cause of many believers being thrown into prison. He was the cause of believers in Christ being killed. He held the garments of those who stoned Stephen. Paul could painfully recall this hatred of Jesus. Until that moment, on the road to Damascus, when Jesus personally appeared to him. He knew that his conversion had nothing to do with himself. He knew that his conversion was not something that he, that he earned. He knew that he was a persecutor of the very followers of Jesus himself. He knew himself to be exactly what he describes in his letter to the Ephesians. He knew that he was dead in transgressions and sins until God made him alive 
through the very appearing of Jesus Christ to him in that Damascus Road experience. In John chapter 1, we read two weeks ago that when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he was full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Paul tells us that the source of the incarnation was the very same grace that saved him on the road to Damascus. The second thing I'd like to see from the text is the nature of the incarnation. And what I mean by that is that the incarnation was a voluntary and willing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is actually a somewhat unusual phrase in the New Testament. Normally when we hear about grace, we just hear about the grace of God. But here specifically, we're told that it was the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This title that Paul uses here reminds us of some of the things that Pete shared with us two weeks ago. It reminds us that the one whose grace came to us in the incarnation is the grace of the Lord. That word Lord is the word Jehovah, Yahweh God. This is the grace of Jehovah God that comes to us. But it's also the grace of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was the human name. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus reminds us of his humanity, of the human name of our Savior. But it was also the grace of Christ. Christ means the anointed one, the one God appointed to be the Savior of the world, the one who came to this world and came willingly. The grace that we receive is the willing and voluntary grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor John reminded us last week of Philippians 2, which tells us that Jesus humbled himself. He made himself nothing by being born in the likeness of men. We fail to see the, incarnate, the wonder of the incarnation unless we ask this question, do people make themselves poor on purpose? Jesus did. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, uh, we are taken into the eternal throne room of God and we listen in on a conversation between the members of the Trinity. And we're told, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
In eternity past, in the throne room of God, the second person of the Trinity, Christ himself, said, I will go into the world. Prepare for me a body, and I will come and do your will, O Father, as it is written about me in the scroll of the book. The scroll of the book is a reference to the plan of God, the eternal plan of God. And in the eternal plan of God, it was the Son of God, Jesus himself, who willingly and voluntarily made himself poor. The second person of the Trinity said, I will go. Prepare a body for me. He voluntarily and willingly came to show us grace and save us. The grace that saves us, the grace of the incarnation, is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing I'd like us to see from the text is the motive of the incarnation. The motive of the incarnation is selfless love. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Jesus was rich. Jesus was the second person of the Trinity, creator of the world, seated at the right hand of the Father. He was rich in glory. He was rich in relationship with his Father and the Spirit. Yet he made himself poor in the incarnation. And we're told in this verse, he did it for our sake. He did it for us. This is selfless love in its highest form. And while it can be said that he came to this earth to glorify his Father, Paul here emphasizes the selflessness of Christ's love that lays aside his glory for the sake of others. He truly counted the interests of others above his own. He saw our needs as lost sinful men and women more significant than his riches. He looked upon our interests above his own. The incarnation is the greatest example of selfless love. He became poor for our sake. And the fourth thing I'd like us to see from this text is that the incarnation was a purposeful love. The motive was selfless love, but what was the purpose of this selfless love? Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. He did it so that we might become rich through his poverty. His purpose in humiliating himself 
was to make us rich. By his perfect life, he would earn us righteousness. By his substitutionary death, he would pay our debt and enable us to be forgiven of our sins. By his atoning work, he would pave the way for our adoption so that we might be brothers and sisters of his and the very sons and daughters of God. Jesus' riches to rags story translates us from a state of spiritual rags to spiritual riches beyond description or comprehension. In Ephesians 1, Paul states that in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In Ephesians 2, we're told that God is going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace through the kindness he's shown to us in Christ Jesus. And Peter tells us that we are in possession of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and is being kept in heaven for us. Jesus' purpose in coming into this world was to make us rich. Now, on the heels of these four truths about the incarnation that I've looked back on, I would like to now share three applications of these truths that look forward. How do these truths affect me? How should they affect me? How should they make me a different person in 2021? And the first application that I'd like to share with you, the first reflection is really very simple. We are rich. Now, I hate to be Captain Obvious, but here's what I'd like to ask you. Has Jesus ever failed to accomplish something he set out to do? Have any of his purposes ever been thwarted? Has Jesus ever found himself lacking in the strength it takes to accomplish a task? Has Jesus ever been lacking in the wisdom that it takes to accomplish a task so that unforeseen circumstances cause him to fail in his purposes? Never. Those are things that are true about you and me. I often intend to do something. I often purpose to do something and find I don't have the strength to do it. I often intend to do something. I often purpose to do something and find that in my limited wisdom, there are circumstances beyond my control that I wasn't expecting and I'm not able to do what I intended to do. That is never true about Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came into the world for the purpose of making us rich, he made us rich. I fear that one of my greatest shortcomings and sins is a propensity to live like a spiritual pauper when Jesus has made me rich. After Andrew Carnegie gave away his fortune, oil magnate John Paul Getty had his turn 
being known as the richest man in the world. At one point, a reporter came up to him and asked him this question. What does it feel like to be the richest man in the world? Do you know what his answer was? His answer was this. I don't feel very rich. How sad. I don't want to be the spiritual equivalent of John Paul Getty. In 2021, I want to live in light of the riches that are mine in Jesus Christ. I want to remember that nothing that makes me truly rich in Christ can be taken away by a pandemic. I want to live like Paul and Silas, who were able to sing in a dungeon. I want to live like Corey Tenboom, who was able to know and love God in a Nazi concentration camp. I want to live in the joy of my salvation and in the joy of the riches that Christ has earned for me by his incarnation. The second application that I'd like to share from this text comes from the immediate context of 2 Corinthians 8, 9. I want to be like the Macedonian Christians. In chapter 8, verse 2, we are told that in a severe test of affliction, there the Macedonian Christians' abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. The context of 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is the extreme generosity of the Macedonian Christians to their Corinthian brothers and sisters. Notice the very unusual combination of descriptors for the Macedonian Christians. Joy, extreme poverty, and generosity, all bound up together. When you read this verse for the first time, it might seem like, God, I know that there aren't any typos in the Bible, but am I reading this right? Don't you mean, God, that the Macedonian Christians, uh, that their wealth led them to abundance of joy and generosity to others? No, it doesn't say that. It seems that the Macedonian Christians had such an understanding of their riches in Jesus that they were able to exhibit joy in their lives and a spirit of generosity to others, even though they were described as being extremely poor. An awareness of the riches of Christ and the riches that we have in him should make us the most generous people on the face of the earth. It should enable us to be generous even if we don't have very much ourselves. It should challenge us to regard all we have as God's and not our own, which will enable us to, be ge to generously give to the needs of others whether or not we have very much ourselves. 
If we're waiting to be generous until God makes us rich, we are forgetting that in Jesus, God has already made us rich. Can I be a bit pointed in my application here? God's word calls you and me to be generous. And a word picture of generosity in the Bible, especially in the book of Proverbs, is a picture of an open hand. An open hand is not grasping on to the things of this world. An open hand means that we value spiritual riches far above the riches of this world. An open hand means we do not view our worth the way the world views our worth. My net worth has nothing to do with the balance in my bank account. It has nothing to do with the size of my home. It has nothing to do with the make and model and year of my car. My worth is measured in my relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and his indwelling spirit. If this is true, the time to be generous is now. The church needs your generosity. So do the needy people that God is going to place in front of your path in 2021. If you're waiting to tithe, for instance, until God gives you more money, you will never tithe. The Macedonians are our reminder that the time to be generous is not when we have more money, but when we see a need. The good Samaritan was good because when he saw a need, he didn't walk by on the other side. He did the best he could to meet the need, and we are never told that he was rich. In 2021, I want to remember the riches I have in Christ, and because of that, I want to be more generous this year than I have ever been in the past. I want to loosen my grasp on this world's possessions. I want to see my home as God's, to do with it as he pleases. I want to see my money as God's, to use as he pleases. I want to increase in my personal generosity because I want to see all I possess as God's and not my own. When I think of the past several months and the many shoeboxes that we packed as a church for Operation Christmas Child and the abundance of food we collected as a church for the benefit of the local pantry, I want to make sure that I finish this particular application with a word of commendation. We have seen this church in the last couple of months be very, very generous. So I'm simply going to say, let's be all the more generous in 2021. Let's grow in our willingness to be generous this coming year as we look back at Christ's being willing to make himself poor. And the third and final application is that a contemplation of Jesus' grace 
in becoming poor so that we might become rich should always result in a spirit of worship. Many of the songs we sing are songs of worship that thank Jesus for all that he has done for us. Many Christmas carols have a part of their message, the thankfulness for the very things we have been thinking about this morning, for Jesus making himself poor so that we might become rich. Like these words from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. He laid his glory aside to raise the sons of earth. And I'd like to finish by just reading a couple of Christmas songs that are a little bit less well known, but represent beautiful poetry that should stir up our emotions to worship the one who came in the incarnation to save us and make us rich. The first was written by Martin Luther in 1524, nearly 500 years ago. Its title is, All Praise to Thee, Eternal Lord. All praise to Thee, Eternal Lord, clothed in a garb of flesh and blood choosing a manger for thy throne, while worlds on worlds are thine alone. Once did the skies before thee bow, a virgin's arms contain thee now. Angels who did in thee rejoice, now listen for thine infant voice. A little child, thou art our guest, that weary ones in thee may rest, Forlorn and lowly is thy birth, that we might rise to heaven from earth. Thou comest in the darksome night to make us children of the light, to make us in the realms divine like thine own angels round thee shine. All this for us thy love hath done. By this to thee our love is one. For this we tune our cheerful lays and shout our thanks in ceaseless praise. And a more recent hymn that still has some old language based on 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender, Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becamest poor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake, becamest man, stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake, becamest man. Thou who art love, beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. Emmanuel, within us dwelling, 
make us what thou wouldst have us be. Thou who art love, beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wondrous love and grace that sent your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being willing to be made poor and for being willing to make poor, be made poor for our sake so that we, through your poverty, might be rich. In the year to come, Lord, would you help us to remember that we are rich in you? Would you help us to have a spirit of generosity flowing from the riches we know that we possess in you to others? And would you help every day, every season of the year, not just the Advent season, to be a season of worshiping you for all that you have done on our behalf. We thank you this morning, and we worship you this morning, and we ask that you would help us to be like you in the days ahead, that we might bring you the glory that you deserve, that we might lift your name up, even as you have lifted us up from earth to heaven. For we pray this in your matchless name. Amen.